At long last, here we are, the last philosophy lecture. Um, today we are talking about Wittgenstein, um, but I also just kind of want to talk about philosophy in general at this point in time, um, because we have very much caught up to the present at long last. Uh, you know, Nietzsche was writing in the second half of the 19th century, Peirce was writing in the at the end of the 19th century, and William James was writing at the beginning of the 20th. Uh, Wittgenstein, at least the part of Wittgenstein we're reading, is well into the 1950s. Um, and this is kind of where philosophy has stayed, um, as weird as it may be to say. See, academia doesn't move very fast, and philosophy even less so. Um, so there have been, you know, important philosophers since Wittgenstein, but there's a lot of disagreement about who in fact they are. Um, I talked about this a little bit in our Q&A session a week or two ago, um, probably longer for you guys now that you're listening to this, and the last week of class, which, P.S., don't forget about the final exam, oh my gosh, don't forget that all things have to be in by May 11th or they won't count. Um, but anyway, in one of our Q&A sessions, we started talking about the difference between analytic and continental philosophy, and that's one of the main things that I want to talk about uh, before we get into Wittgenstein. So... When I present philosophers, I kind of present them as being representative of their own time period. Like, with some few exceptions, um, like, I, I sort of present them as though, you know, every philosopher agrees that, like, Descartes is super important or Aquinas is super important. Um, I present Aquinas as though he is, like, very representative of the whole medieval philosophical tradition. Um, and likewise, I present Descartes as though he's really important to the whole modern philosophical tradition, um, even if I represent him as like having fundamental disagreements with Hume as an empiricist. Um, but the trick with contemporary philosophy is that that's not the case anymore. Um, part of the reason why Nietzsche is so controversial is because different people have sort of taken Nietzsche in different directions. Um, taken different parts of Nietzsche as being more or less important. So while basically everybody agrees that Nietzsche banging on about the Superman and that God is dead is not necessarily all that great, a lot of people assume that Nietzsche's challenging of traditional values is in fact really insightful and important. Um, as much as like people are suspicious of his will to power and this idea that like we should overcome our enemies, um, there are a lot of people who agree that Christian morality and like the moral strictures of the time are just passing things that need to be ignored. Um, but at the same time, like Nietzsche's whole approach is very much rejected by a whole school of philosophy. Um, to give you sort of like a little retroactive history lesson on what philosophy did in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, after, like, after the Enlightenment, when when we were talking about Hume and the philosophes like Rousseau and Voltaire. Um, after all those guys, obviously, we got Kant, and Kant was a huge deal. Um, he is the major German idealist. Um, he is probably the most important philosopher since Plato, and certainly the most important philosopher, you know, f after Kant wrote. Um, like, nobody has been nearly as important as Kant since Kant. Um, but after Kant came this other philosophical thinker called Hegel, who we didn't talk about all that much, because Hegel is weird. Um, like, when I talk about the German idealists, I refer specifically to Kant, to Hegel, to their followers like Fichte, um, or the young Hegelians, and to Husserl. Um, but they've kind of formed their own sort of separate, 
like movement in philosophy, this German idealist movement. These are like Germans who write huge, wide-ranging books about a wide variety of subjects. They are long and there is a lot to them and all of the pieces fit together in various ways. So like Kant, he, his whole system isn't just one book. Like Descartes does the meditations and everything you need to know about Descartes' philosophy you can get from that book. Instead, Kant writes the Critique of Pure Reason, which is about how reason works, the Critique of Practical Reason, which is about how ethics works, how like pure reason should be interpreted to make choices, and then the Critique of Judgment, which is about how, you know, why this matters. Um, and all of these are crucial to his philosophical project. Likewise, Hegel has the Phenomenology of Spirit, which like describes the whole progress of the human search for knowledge, the science of logic, which is supposed to like talk about the way that logic itself and rationality works, as well as the philosophy of right, which is his sort of philosophy of history and like how politics and government is supposed to work. Um, and all of these are sort of these critical moments in each of their systems. And it's honestly friggin' hard to read these guys because you never see the whole picture. Um, like even during my master's degree, I read the Critique of Pure Reason and I had already read a decent chunk of the groundwork of metaphysics and morals and you know a bunch of other Kantian stuff and I've never actually finished reading the Critique of Practical Reason or the Critique of Judgment. I just know about them in theory, um, in summary. Likewise, I've read most of the Phenomenology of Spirit. I'm not even sure any of my professors have successfully finished that book. Um, I don't know anyone, with maybe one exception, who's read the whole of the philosophy or the science of right, because that sucker is just crazy. Um, like, even Hegelian scholars recognize that like the project is kind of bigger than and what any one of them is able to to tackle. But importantly. The, after the German idealists, there was sort of this schism in philosophy, this sort of changing of ideas and this disagreement on what the goal of philosophy actually was. Um, following the German idealists, guys like Hegel and Husserl, these big major philosophers talking about big ideas, even if their logic is a little squirrely, um, we got the Continental School. And the Continental philosophers are very interested in, again, these big ideas. Is there a God? What is truth? Like, do we have free will? If so, what does it look like? Um, they they're called the continental school largely because they're mostly to be found on the european continent so like most german philosophers today most french philosophers today um, are in this continental school but there's also a large number of philosophers who saw this big german idealism and all this talk about like the purpose of, and meaning of human beings or like do we have free will is there a god as being really stupid fuzzy questions that we can't actually answer um like, you'll notice Nietzsche has a lot of suspicion about the metaphysicians, the pragmatists outright reject metaphysics, um, and Hume before them was very suspicious of metaphysics and, you know, committed to the flames, he said. Um, and for that reason, there's increasingly a hostility to this continental school of philosophy. Um, and in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we see this alternative school, um, the analytic school, crop up primarily in uh, America and England. Uh, so you'll notice both Peirce and James, they are a, an American and a, a British philosopher, respectively. Um, and so 
uh, they they are very suspicious of metaphysics and of big wide-ranging phenomenological systems um, but the key here is um, where Hume is recognized as an important philosopher across the board, where Kant is recognized as an important philosopher across the board, where you know some of our late 19th century philosophers like Nietzsche or Marx are recognized as important philosophers across the board, um, increasingly in the late 19th century and the 20th century, whether or not you are considered an important philosopher will depend on whether you are talking to a continental or an analytic philosopher philosophical program and they do tend to run like that um like most of the schools that you go to to study philosophy in america today are analytic schools rutgers is an analytic school harvard is an analytic school princeton is an analytic school i think duke is an analytic school um they absolutely focus their entire philosophy philosophy department is devoted to analytic philosophy um they do not respect continental philosophers maybe they have like one person on staff who's qualified to talk about it but generally speaking when they say we teach philosophy here they mean analytic philosophy they mean instead of talking about feelings and experience and metaphysics we're going to talk about science and we're going to talk about rationality and we're going to talk about method um we're going to talk about like how to make science better um, we're going to use big mathematical formulae as examples. We're going to, you know, carefully deconstruct everything that has been said in prior philosophical texts. And we're generally going to reject a lot of the history of philosophy as being wrongheaded and instead teach the concepts, the ideas, rather than the historical works. Um, by contrast, you go over to continental schools and they're like, maybe they have a good method over there in britain and america but they don't actually talk about anything they just are endlessly talking in circles about language and science and method and it doesn't actually yield any results it's just pointless um and that's kind of the fundamental disagreement between these two schools on the one hand the analytic school looks at the continental school and says you guys are dealing in fuzzy logic um, and it doesn't actually mean anything. The Continental School looks at the Analytic School and says, you are so focused on your method that you can't actually say anything, and therefore you can't mean anything. Your findings are pointless. Um, and they just don't disagree. That's the end of it. Um, you can't, you can in fact find continental schools in America and England. Um, Yale is a big continental program. Boston College, where my alma mater is a continental program. You are getting what is probably a fairly heavily skewed continental, uh, philosophical training in my class. Sorry, folks. Um, that isn't actually all that marketable, even by philosophy philosophy standards um but it does mean that you are trained on the historical philosophers you're trained in the history of thought that's why i keep doing this like as much as i am sympathetic to analytic programs and my like my interests kind of range between the continental and the analytic um you like i, I tend to think that the continental has the better teaching approach um teaching you how to think is more important than teaching you what to think so to speak um but you'll notice that our philosophers over the last few classes have kind of ranged that as well. Nietzsche leans continental. Um, he is interested in feelings and experiences. The pragmatists lean analytic. They are all about method and truth and championing science. Um, but 
after the pragmatists, even like during the pragma pragmatic movement, this division is really coming into play, and future philosophers are largely divided as far as their relevance is concerned. So on the one hand, in like the early 20th century, the analytic school is producing thinkers like Russell and Whitehead and the logical positivists. Um, and these are thinkers who are very interested in interrogating logic, um, sort of trying to work out why logic fails, why there are all these metaphysicians like Descartes who end up making these claims that sound reasonable but actually don't hold any water. Um, Russell especially, uh, he writes this fantastic, like three gigantic three volume work called the Principia Mathematica, which is just like this breakdown of all of logic, like how language works at its basic, most fundamental level, all the way up to proving the foundations of, of math. And it's a giant failure. Like everybody universally acknowledges that Russell did not succeed in his project of perfecting language. Um, in fact, Kurt Gödel, a uh, mathematician, um, later demonstrated, proved that there was no such thing as a perfect language. Any language that is self-referential must necessarily have holes in it. Um, even math isn't foolproof, is what basically Gödel was saying. Um, and part of that has to do with like recursive systems, systems that refer to themselves. Like you'll notice, one of the great things about the English language and about most languages entirely is that it's self-referential. I can refer to this sentence within the context of this sentence, um, which means I can nest my sentences. I can refer to the last or the second or the last but one sentence that I referred to as this sentence and then talk about this sentence, not meaning the sentence that I am saying right now, but this sentence that I said like two sentences ago. And if your mind is melting, well, that's kind of the point. What Gödel is stressing is my language can't be foolproof. I can put together a grammatically correct sentence that doesn't actually have a grammatically un understandable meaning. It cannot necessarily boil down to a proposition. Um, if I say something like, this sentence is false, I can literally break your brain. Um, because logically, it can neither be true nor false. Quote, this sentence is false, unquote, um, is only true if the sentence is false, and only false if the sentence is true, which makes for a paradox. Um, that's the what Gert what Kurt Gödel is ultimately proving. All sufficiently complex, like linguistic or adjacent systems, like math, like language, is necessarily prone to paradox, will create situations where no meaning can be derived from the sentence. Um, at the same time as this is going on, though, the Continental School is flourishing under existentialism. Um, Heidegger wrote Being in Time, and in, in that text, Heidegger suggests that all human beings are unified by their awareness of death um, and their sort of efforts to like cope with death. Um, Camus is sort of questioning what is meaning as far as like how do we go about our lives? Do we in fact live deliberately? Um, and Sartre basically is interrogating like what is... Um, Sartre basically concludes that we have, like, freedom is our fundamental state of affairs in life. Um, we are, we define our essence after we are given our existence. 
Um, unlike, say, a stapler, which, you know, it comes out of the factory with a clear design purpose in mind. It was designed to put staples in things. We human beings have to decide after we are thrown into the world what exactly we're here to do, um, which gives us a terrible amount of freedom, but also a terrible amount of responsibility. Um, but again, you'll notice these philosophers aren't even talking about the same subject anymore. Um, like Russell is saying freedom is a word that is misused. Like it, it is a, it is a null value in the linguistic system. Um, where Sartre is saying freedom is the fundamental assumption that I base my entire philosophical system on. Um, like they could not even be more different. It's practically not even the same discipline anymore. Um, they can't even talk to each other because their ways of using language are so radically different. Um, and you'll see that now as well. Um, in that same conversation, I mentioned that like contemporary philosophers who typically mean a big deal aren't actually philosophers as a rule. Um, the philosophers who have made the biggest splash since Wittgenstein are typically coming from sociology or they're coming from history or they're coming from linguistics or they're coming from other disciplines. Um, to this day, like many philosophers consider Freud a philosopher, even though the psychological discipline tends to hold them as one of theirs. Um, it's messy. Uh, if you are looking for like who are the major modern philosophers at which, you know, as you're doing your research paper, I'm sure you ran into some significant problems with that um it's tough it's tough because people disagree um different groups say you know this guy is a really important philosopher or this girl is useless and we don't need her or she doesn't fit with our system it's tricksy um but the reason why i stress this whole story is because wittgenstein is the exception um wittgenstein is the last philosopher who both the continental and analytic school readily embraced at least you know before we get to Foucault and Derrida and some of the messy stuff that happens in the 80s which I don't think anyone is still qualified to like decide how that shakes out as far as the analytic continental divide is concerned and in fact Wittgenstein's two books are sort of indicative of the two directions that philosophy is going to go in um, we read the second and the more continental of Wittgenstein's two books um, the two books that I'm referring to, because he does in fact have others, it's just like they're all notebooks or like posthumously published. Um, the two books that are really significant for Wittgenstein are the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus um, and the Philosophical Investigations, which is where what we're reading from in this class. Um, the Tractatus is a hard, mean, mathematical, like no fat, no frills, philosophical treatise on language um, and his conclusion in the Tractatus Logical Philosophicus is that um, language is not equipped is not set up to talk about most of the things that philosophy wants to talk about in short like the term free will is a linguistic deception it is a grammatical ghost in a manner of speaking um, and he concludes in a very famous like conclusion, possibly one of the most famous last lines of any work of philosophy ever, what we cannot talk about, we must pass over in silence. Um, and for Wittgenstein, that meant all of metaphysics. It meant virtually all of ethics. 
um, and quite a bit of other disciplines that are typically following falling under the uh, masthead of philosophy as well. Things like epistemology. Um, we don't have words that cause us or that. How do I put this? Our words do not fit what we want them to do. Um, we have gaps in our language, gaps that cannot be filled because language just does not successfully bridge those gaps. Um, and at the same time, language inclines us to believe things that aren't real. Language tells us there's got to be a noun for every verb, and yet that leads us to believe things like, I think, therefore I am, instead of there is thinking going on, period, the end, full stop, and Descartes' entire conclusion is bunk. Um, when we say there is a perfect being, and a perfect being must exist because existence is a perfection, Wittgenstein is basically saying, no, that's just because your words are playing tricks on you, and you're in some way playing tricks with language. You are using the structure, the grammar of, your, of the way that you speak to make something true that isn't, to sort of fake your way to a conclusion, and that's not how that's supposed to work. Um, unsurprisingly, the Tractatus was met, like, with a pretty crazy reception. Like, people go nuts over that book. Um, but it's also the first of Wittgenstein's great works. Um, he later repudiated it. Uh, as much as he starts, or he ends the Tractatus by saying we have to pass over these subjects in silence, the Philosophical Investigations is an examination of language using language. Um, which would be a violation of that principle, according to the Tractatus. Um, so Wittgenstein ultimately rejects the conclusion that he found there. And instead, the text that we get in the Philosophical Investigations is not one of these sort of like shoot from the hip, um, this is what is the case because logic sort of arguments. Instead, the Philosophical Investigations is kind of a series of questions, one that does not have clear conclusions set up for us. Um, it's not presented as though Wittgenstein has something concrete to tell us. Instead, Wittgenstein is probing us. Um, he is asking us to come to our own conclusions given the problems that he is identifying. And it's kind of one of my favorite philosophical texts for that very reason. Um, because Wittgenstein is not offering conclusions. He's just asking questions in a more clever way. Um, he is inviting us to comprehend what or to look at the world in the same way that he sees it with all of the complexity and all of the problems that that entails he is basically telling us don't get complacent don't think that you can just answer these questions that you can just solve the problems of language um, casually without serious consideration um, and I've mentioned before, like I know that we haven't talked about it extensively up until this point, but basically every writer we've talked about, I've taken a moment and I've said, look at the language, look at the way they are using words, because that is very characteristic of most philosophers. They invent their own way of saying things as well as their own like system to understand what is being said. Um, Wittgenstein is a philosopher of language, and importantly, Wittgenstein suspects language of biasing our philosophy in one direction or another. And our suspicion of language should be well entrenched at this point. Um, as much as Plato was all about piety as this thing that existed and was awesome, 
everyone in the class was suspicious of that. Like, everyone was like, why does this piety thing have to be a thing? Um, why does goodness have to be an entity? Um, by contrast, think of the Tao Te Ching. And again, that famous first line, the Tao, or Tao called Tao is not Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. Um, the implication that Lao Tzu is making, by contrast, is that the Tao is not something we can know, and our words are not going to be able to capture it. They're not going to be sufficient to that task. Um, but it, even more importantly, as we get into guys like Descartes and into Hume, we see how word games are very much what they're trying to either embrace or dispel. Um, for Descartes, our senses deceive us, and instead our language, our words, our rationality is what is supposed to save us. For Hume, we have to be leery of language, of our language games, so to speak. Um, we have to be aware that what we think words mean may lead us into dead ends and death traps, um, places that we cannot go. Um, likewise, Nietzsche, he is very suspicious of language. He's got that great line in Twilight of the Idols of I, uh, where he says, I fear that we have not gotten rid of God because we still believe in grammar, which is very much the predecessor to Wittgenstein suggesting that all philosophy is just grammar in a section of the philosophical investigations that we don't have. Um, so what I want to stress here is that every philosopher we've run into has, to some degree, suspected language has been careful about their language. Like, as much as I, you know, as much as we all hated the medieval philosophers like Aquinas, Aquinas was incredibly aware of this. Remember, he was stressing, you know, you can't use the same word to talk about God and man. man God is not good in the same way that humans are good. We can only use that language analogically, metaphorically, in a manner of speaking. Um, and Aquinas is very careful to define his terms. He was always careful to, to avoid equivocation using the same word in two different senses. He always tried to clarify how does language work and how does logic work using that language. Um, and that's part of why I like him so much. He is meticulous about his language. He doesn't just jump to the conclusion that because this word means this thing, therefore this other thing must necessarily be the case. Um, he is a lot more cautious. Um, than many of our philosophers, including Descartes. But Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, rather than address these philosophical truths as they are addressed with language, like the positivists before him do, Wittgenstein just shuts everything down. And all he wants to talk about here in the philosophical investigations is language. Um, he wants to get language straight, or at least as straight as it can be, or at least to recognize that it never will be straight, and you should stop fighting to make it straight. There's too much that we can't know about the very words we use, much less be able to fix them in fancy ways to make philosophy happen. Um, and no one is going to do philosophy quite the same way after Wittgenstein. Um, like... As much as, you know, I know that I'm tooting my own horn on this one because I just love Wittgenstein a lot, I really think he is the most important philosopher of the 20th century period and the end. Um, like, he has radically changed the way that philosophy has gone about its business. No one can put the genie back in the bottle after Wittgenstein has released it. Um, no one can look at language with the same uncompromising faith 
that Descartes and Hume, Aquinas and Plato all had now that Wittgenstein has said, wait, what does our language actually do? What it, does it actually mean? Um, and unlike a lot of the other philosophers at this time who were just outright rejecting language, the positivists especially are, you know, attacking old metaphysics using the tool of like misguided language to guide them. Wittgenstein is not going that far. He doesn't have an axe to grind. He doesn't have a mission, an agenda. He is not out to destroy the way that Nietzsche is. Instead, Wittgenstein is out to question. Um, and importantly, Wittgenstein isn't doing this from a place of like ignorance or stupidity either. As much as he is asking questions, he is asking pointed and informed questions. Um, Wittgenstein was a student of Bertrand Russell, again, the guy who wrote that giant, like, collapsed Principia Mathematica, which means that he was very knowledgeable about math, he was very knowledgeable about logic, he studied under the master logician of the time, um, and then afterwards, after publishing the Tractatus, he went and he taught kindergarten in Germany for, like, years, um, he saw a lot of this sort of educational frustration firsthand. These questions that he's asking about, like, how do you know if someone understands you? These are things that he experienced firsthand, that he records in his journals firsthand. Um, and moreover, Wittgenstein, his own teaching about language, about math, and about philosophy is what's going to jumpstart the entire computer science revolution of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Alan Turing, the guy who invented, uh, who broke the Enigma code using his supercomputer in the 50s, he was a student of Wittgenstein's. And in a very real sense, Wittgenstein is the father of modern, com modern computing in that, in that way. Um, his ideas got the computer to be a thing. Um, and if you spend any time doing computer programming, doing actual coding, um, you will find that there is, it is really informed by philosophy of language. Uh, its basic assumptions are the same ones that Russell employs in the Principia Mathematica, um, but are at the same time allow you to do all sorts of funny, interesting things that can get some really impressive uh, like computational solutions going. Um, what I'm saying is there's this really interesting place that Wittgenstein occupies um, between the disciplines of philosophy, number theory, computer science, linguistics, semiotics, like all of these things have this one common place and Wittgenstein kind of resides at the center of all of it and informs all of it in a very real way. Um, he's a big deal. Uh, and like the very fact that he is such a big deal indicates, you know, that he has been recognized by both continental and analytic scholars as being important. Um, admittedly, each one takes their own from him. Like the analytics typically love the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus and ignore the philosophical investigations, while the continental scholars tend to love the philosophical investigations and ignore the Tractatus. Um, but both are kind of mistaken, I think. Wittgenstein did a lot of both. He was an analytic scholar with a continental mindset, um, or an analytic or a continental scholar with an analytic mindset. Um, he was interested in continental problems from an analytic perspective, which is sort of the ideal. Um, and we are lucky to have him, and we will not see his like again, I suspect, until philosophy has radically changed again. Um, 
But anyway, enough preface. Let's talk about this text, because it is interesting. Um, you'll notice his whole argument starts with this quote from Augustine's Confessions. Um, and while it's presented here in the original Latin, thankfully, G.M. Anscombe provides the translation at the bottom of the page. When they, my elders, named some object and accordingly moved towards something, I saw this and I grasped the, that the thing was called by the sound they uttered when they meant to point it out. Their intention was shown by their bodily movements, as it were the natural language of all peoples, the expression of the face, the play of the eyes, the movement of other parts of the body, and the tone of voice which expresses our state of mind in seeking, having, rejecting, or avoiding something. Thus, as I heard words repeatedly used in their proper places in various sentences, I gradually learned to understand what objects they signified, and after I had trained my mouth to form these signs, I used them to express my own desires. Now, Wittgenstein criticizes this whole attitude on language because... As far as he can tell, it's incomplete. Um, Augustine is one of the medieval philosophers. He's a very early medieval philosopher. Um, he's the guy that Aquinas quotes like all the time because he's the first major synthesizer of like Plato and Christianity. Um, and this passage is rightly famous. Like it's one of the first major efforts by a medieval thinker um, to tackle the subject of language. But the way that Augustine presents it is oversimplified from Wittgenstein's perspective. Um, sure, like, part of the process of learning language is watching people say, like, this, this is a ball, um, while pointing at the ball. This, this is a cat, while pointing at a cat. Um, and Wittgenstein is, says, yes, that's an important part of the process, but it's so much more complicated than that. Not, the entire language is not just composed of nouns. Um, you can't point to five. You can't point to love. You can't point to running. Um, you can't point to um, of or 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 thus or because. Um, we have all of these words that mean something that cannot be pointed to, that do not have an object that they correspond to. Um, language is not just nouns stacked on top of each other. And to illustrate this, Wittgenstein comes up with his language games. And he will pose multiple language games over the course of this text. Like, we only see, like, two of the most famous. Um, but I do want to take both of them apart. So, the first one is in section one. Now, think of the following use of language. I send someone shopping. I give him a slip marked five red apples. He takes the slip to the shopkeeper, who opens the drawer marked apples. Then he looks up the word red in a table and finds a color sample opposite it. Then he says the series of cardinal numbers, I assume that he knows them by heart, up to the word five, and for each number he takes an apple of the same color as the same sample out of the drawer. It is in this and similar ways that one operates with words. But how does he know where and how he is to look up the word red? And what is he to do with the word five? Well, I assume that he acts as I have described. Explanations come to an end somewhere. But what is the meaning of the word five? No such thing was in question here, only how the word five is used. Notice there's no meaning to the word five. There isn't a five that you can point to. You cannot point to a five. Um, five is not an object. It is not a name for an object. It is a concept. And it's not even a concept that should operate as a noun. Um, like, if we try and give five a part of speech, it would probably be an adjective at best. Um, and that's assuming that we don't give it its own separate category altogether. Um, but notice, even within this system, there are assumptions at play that Wittgenstein wants to talk about in later sections. How does the shopkeeper know 
that the word five implies the number? How does he know to count up to the number five? How does he learn all the cardinal numbers up to five? Um, all of this Im implies greater depth and complexity than what Augustine is initially indicating. Likewise, how does he know that red is supposed to be a color? How does he know which table to look for it in? Um, how is he supposed to know that red is, you know, delineating some quality of the object and is not just another, like, signifier, like five? Um, it's complicated. It's not simple. Um, so to make it simple, we come up with language game number two. Uh, that philosophical concept of meaning has its place in a primitive idea of the way language functions, but one can also say that it is the idea of a language more primitive than ours. Let us imagine a language for which the description given by Augustine is right. The language is meant to serve for communication between a builder A and an assistant B. A is building with building stones. There are blocks, pillars, slabs, and beams. B has to pass the stones and that in the order in which A needs them. For that purpose, they use a language consisting of the words block, pillar, slab, beam. A calls them out. B brings the stone which he has learned to bring at such and such a call. Conceive this as a complete primitive language. Um, so in this language, there are literally only four words, and each of the four words corresponds directly to a specific object. Block for block, slab for slab, pillar for pillar, beam for beam. But notice, too, it's still not that simple. Um, when the builder shouts out block, what he is not doing is shouting out the name of an object. He is directing the assistant to fulfill a command. So look at language game eight, where he expands this. Let us now look at an expansion of language two. Besides the four word block, pillar, etc., let it contain a series of words used as the shopkeeper and one used the numerals. It can be the series of letters of the alphabet. Further, let there be two words, which may as well be there and this, because this roughly indicates their purpose, that are used in connection with a pointing gesture. And finally, a number of color samples. A gives an order like D slab there. At the same time, he shows the assistant a color sample, and when he says there, he points to a place on the building site. From the stock of slabs, B takes one for each letter of the alphabet up to D, of the same color as the sample, and brings them to the place indicated by A. On other occasions, A gives the order this, there. At this, he points to a building stone, and so on. Already, we have complicated the matter. Already, we have shown that it doesn't mean as simple a thing as Augustine seemed to think it was. When, you, when the builder says block, he is implying that not only like, are we talking about a block the object, but also that the block needs to be brought to him. Block only means something in the context of the system. And what Wittgenstein consistently wants to emphasize is the rules surrounding the words are as important as the words themselves. Language is not just all the words you find in the dictionary. Language is all of the grammar, all of the words, all of the gestures, all of the body language, all of the interactions, all of the contexts, all of the meaning, all of the like objects represented, all of the symbols that are used to represent them. All of this is wrapped up in what language means. Block only means block if we oversimplify it. In this context, block actually means go bring me a block, like go get a block and bring it to me. Um, which we would express with a complete sentence, more than just a word. The word in this case is every word in that sentence. It does not translate to block. Um, now, 
Importantly, too, this also has to do with the training involved. Um, if you notice in 5 and 6, a child uses such primitive forms of language when it learns to talk, like block, slab, etc. You know, you see a child point and be like, that, or I want, or, you know, candy, or whatever they are trying to get. And we are meant to interpret, oh, the child wants candy. That's all that they can express at this point. They can't put their ideas into complete sentences when they're like one or two. Um, so we take what little bit of information we can get. But he goes on, we can imagine that the language of two was the whole language of A and B, even the whole language of a tribe. The children are brought up to perform these actions, to use these words as they do so, and to react in this way to the words of others. An important part of the training will consist in the teachers pointing to the objects, directing the child's attention to them, and at the same time uttering a word, just like Augustine says. For instance, the word slab, as he points to that shape. I do not want to call this ostensive definition, because the child cannot at as yet ask what the name is. I will call it ostensive teaching of words. I say that it will form an important part of the training because it is so with human beings, not because it could not be imagined otherwise. And notice this isn't the whole part of the training. Like this itself belongs in a system. Um, so notice the ostensive teaching of words can be said to establish an association between the word and the thing, but what does this mean? Well, it can mean various things, but one very likely thinks, first of all, that a picture of the object comes before the child's mind when it hears the word. But now, if this does happen, is it the purpose of the word? Yes, it can be the purpose. I can imagine such a use of words, a series of sounds. Uttering a word is like striking a note on the keyboard of the imagination, but in the language of number two, it is not the purpose of the words to evoke images. It may, of course, be discovered that that helps to attain the actual pur pur purpose. Um, when you say block outside of this language, like in our language, you imagine a block, maybe a wooden block or maybe a like stone block. It doesn't matter. Um, is the word then designed to conjure the image? Because in the language game that he's suggesting, it isn't. When you call slab, the idea isn't think of a slab. It's bring me a slab. The function of the word is an action. It is an imperative. Um, and that is important. Like the purpose of the word has an action and an imperative tied into it, where ours typically does not, although it can. And that's also important. Like if you and I are in fact building a building and I shout to you slab, you can infer from our context, from the situation that I want you to bring me a slab in the same way that a child in a grocery store pointing and saying candy likely means that they want candy. Um, as much as our language is designed so that we do not have to resort to these sort of vague and ambiguous uh, situations, it is still inferable given context, given circumstances, given our basic understanding of what human beings are doing in this, in this situation. Um, so he goes on. If the ostensive teaching has this effect, am I to say that it affects an understanding of the word? Don't you understand the call slab if you act on it in such and such a way? Doubtless the ostensive teaching helped to bring this about, but only together with a particular training. With different training, the same ostensive teaching of these words would have affected a quite different understanding. To put it bluntly, if you tell, if you give the child candy whenever it says candy, you are training the child. 
As much as this is a language thing, it is also not a language thing. You were basically doing the same thing as Pavlov with his dog. Like, you ring the bell and the dog drools because it expects food. The child is trained to say candy when it is at the grocery store, and then it will get candy. Um, but the training is as much a part of the language for the child as it is a part of the language, or as much as it is not a part of the language when we sort of examine it from our Augustinian rational perspective. Um, we are trying to communicate, like, use your words. This is the word for what you want. Candy is the, the name of this object, you say, pointing to the candy bar. Um, but the child doesn't necessarily understand that they don't necessarily need to understand it all they need to do is say candy and figure that candy will be brought to them um and maybe they're wrong maybe there is some uh, element of confusion in here if you were standing at you know like the park and the child says candy does that still mean that they want candy or does it mean that they want something and instead the word candy has taken to mean that they want something, that they want to have something that you that they don't at the moment have. Um, is it the noun that they are identifying the word with, or is it the action of giving that they are identifying the word with? Because it's not clear. The training has to sort of steer them away from that. So imagine if you have like a child at the park and they see a dog and they point and they say dog and you say yes, that is a dog. Do they want the dog in the same way that they want the candy? Um, do they want you to bring the dog? Like if the dog walks away, do they cry? And you're like, why are you crying? And they respond, dog. And you're like, well, yeah, dog. That was a dog. It's gone now. Sorry. But they wanted it in the same way that they wanted the candy. But by the same like extension you can imagine a different child who points at a dog and says dog and you say yes dog and then they point at a cat and they say dog and you say no that's a cat and it might not mean anything to them unless that training is already in place how do they know that you are pointing at the animal and not at the desire how do they know that this is a word for an object and not a word for a feeling um, and a lot of this is what Wittgenstein wants to talk about, what he's interested in getting at. Um, you'll notice later on when he starts talking about pointing to things and saying this, um, when he talks about the color blue, for example, uh, what he emphasizes is, can you in fact point to the shape or the color? So look at paragraph 33. Suppose, however, someone were to object. It is not true that you must already be master of a language in order to understand an ostensive definition. All you need, of course, is to know or guess that the per person giving the explanation is pointing to. That is, whether, for example, to the shape of the object or to its color or to its number and so on. And what does pointing to the shape, pointing to the color, consist in? Point to a piece of paper and now point to its shape. Now to its color. Now to its number. That sounds queer. How did you do it? You will say that you meant a different thing each time you pointed. And if I ask you how it is done, you will say you concentrated your attention on the color, the shape, etc. But I ask again, how is that done? Suppose someone points to a vase and says, look at that marvelous blue, the shape isn't the point. Or look at that marvelous shape, the color doesn't matter. Without doubt, you will do something different when you act upon these two invitations, but you always do the same thing when you direct your attention to the color. Um, imagine various different cases to indicate a few. Is this blue the same as that blue over there? Do you see any difference? You're mixing paint and you say it's hard to get the blue of the sky. It's turning fine. You can already see the blue sky again. 
Look what different effects these two blues have. Do you see this blue book over there? Bring it here. This blue signal light means, what's this blue called? Is it indigo? In each case, you were talking about the color, but you were talking about the color in different ways. You were attending to the color. You were looking at the color. You were trying to understand this aspect of the color in a different condition. If I say, boy, the sky is really blue today, it might mean something different from, you know, do you think these two blues are the same shade? You will look for something different, even though it's still the color you're supposed to attend to. The context is every bit as important as the word itself. Um, and the actual training is another like component of this that just further confuses things. How are you supposed to point to the blue of a vase? How are you supposed to point to the shape of the vase? Even if you do make it clear, look at the shape of that vase, look at the color of that vase, um, how do you communicate that to someone who isn't already familiar with the language? How do you train a child to recognize the difference between a dog and a cat? Sure, you can bring the dog in front of them and say, here is a dog, and then you can say, here is a cat, not a dog, and go back to the dog, not a cat. Um, that would certainly help, but how does the child recognize when there are so many different kinds of dogs and cats? Like, are you going to really bring out, like, all of the different kinds of dogs? Like, are you going to bring out, like, the dachshund and the chihuahua and the beagle and the, you know, St. Bernard and the, the German Shepherd and the Doberman Pinscher and, like, all these different kinds of dogs and be like, that's a dog, that's a dog, that's a dog, that's a dog, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a cat, that's a cat, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a dog. Like, how... Where is the child supposed to get the information from? And yet we all generally have an understanding. These are dogs. These are cats. They do not like mix. There is no dog-cat hybrid. Um, we generally understand this. Um, presumably you have to teach them the qualities. You have to teach them the, the specific like details that we look for. Dogs have these kinds of noses, cats have these kinds of noses. Dogs have these kinds of whiskers, cats have these kinds of whiskers. Dogs come in these shapes and sizes, cats come in these shapes and sizes. Dogs have these kinds of colorations, cats have these kinds of colorations. But how do you communicate that? How can you say, look at the, look at the color of this dog's fur by pointing to it? How do you express this if the child doesn't know what fur or color or any of that is? Um, if you are trying to teach number, for that matter, think of the difficulty involved. I hold up three apples, and I'm like, three. And then I hold up one apple, and I say, one. And the child says, wait, I thought you said that was a three. And I'm like, no, it was three before, and now it's just one. And I'm like, but it's the same thing, the child says. It's the same apple. It's like, wait, no, now you're confused. All right, let me try again. Here's three apples, here's one orange. And the child's like, okay, I got it apple orange and i'm like no, no 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 this is about three and one three is the number of apples and then they want to know what number means well what is number number is how many of a different kind of thing you have so now i have one apple now i have two apples now i have three apples but i thought you said that that was three all the time like it just goes around and around whatever happens in the training of language is something that we can't fully appreciate but importantly for Wittgenstein, it's also something crucial to the business of language. You are doing language as much when you are learning it as when you are speaking it. And every bit of training, all of those kindergarten classes where some teacher came up to you and said, no, that's not a dog, that's a cat, 
that is as critical to a definition of a word as what you find in the dictionary. Um, that training, that business where we learn what this and that means, where we learn that pointing means going from the wrist to the tip of the finger and beyond, rather than from the tip of the finger to the wrist and up the arm, um, that's also part of the language. All of this is part of the language. And importantly, one of the things that Wittgenstein stresses here is that our conventional definitions with their hard, fast distinctions aren't really all that useful. Um, like as much as we want to say, yes, I understand the difference between a dog and a cat. Here are the biological differences. Here are the clear elements that just differentiate a dog from a cat. In general, most of our definitions are not that clear cut. Um, like consider the definition of the word mammal. Is a platypus a mammal? Well, no, because, or wait, is it? Oh no, now I'm confused. Um, it has some of the qualities, but it doesn't have others. But importantly for Wittgenstein, what he is stressing about language is that it does not deal in absolutes as a rule. It is rare that we run into those absolutes at all. Instead, consider what he has to say about games in paragraph 66. Consider, for example, the proceedings that we call games. I mean, board games, card games, ball games, Olympic games, and so on. What is common to them all? Don't say there must be something common or they would not be called games, but look and see whether there is anything common to all. For if you look at them, you will not see something common to all. For if you look, you will not see something that is common to all, but similarities, relationships, and a whole series of them at that. To repeat, don't think, but look. Look, for example, at board games with their multifarious relationships. Now pass to card games. Here you find many correspondences with the first group, but many common features drop out and others appear. When we pass next to ball games, much that is common is retained, but much is lost. Are they all amusing? Compare chess with knots and crosses. Or is there always winning and losing, or competition between players? Think of patience. In ball games, there is winning and losing, but when a child throws his ball at the wall and catches it again, this feature has disappeared. Look at the parts played by skill and luck, and at the difference between skill in chess and skill in tennis. Think now of games like Ring a Ring a Roses, Ring Around the Rosie. Um, here is the element of amusement, but how many other characteristic features have disappeared? And we can go through the many, many other groups of games in the same way, can see how similarities crop up and disappear. And the result of this examination is we see a complicated network of similarities overlapping and crisscrossing, sometimes overall similarities, sometimes similarities of detail. I can think of no better expression to characterize these similarities than family resemblances for the various resemblances between members of a family, build, features, colors of eyes, uh, gait, temperament, etc., etc., overlap and crisscross in the same way. And I shall say games form a family. Contrast this with what Plato is doing when he says piety is all things that are pious, when he presses Euthyphro for that definition for eight pages um, and relentlessly rejects every definition that Euthyphro brings up because he always has some exception, some rejection of what he has to say. Here, Wittgenstein is saying there is no set of things, no clear delineation between that which is pious and that which is not pious. Look, don't think. If you think, you'll come up with an arbitrary distinction. Maybe sacrifice and prayer are pious, but maybe this act is not. Maybe prosecuting my father is, in fact, an impious thing. These distinctions are artificial. They are not meaningful. They are plastic, as William James would say. Um, they 
come and go. What's important instead is that we recognize that there is a class of things that belong roughly adjacent to piety or to goodness or to justice. And we recognize that while some things will have some of the features that we expect, others will have other ones and not any one will have all of the features and some may have virtually none and yet still fall in the category. A child throwing a ball at a wall is in fact playing a game, even if it doesn't have rules and it doesn't have other players and it doesn't have a win condition, it's still a game. Um, it may have some of the other family resemblances. That's what Wittgenstein wants to emphasize. Language is not cut and dry. It does not yield hard, fast results. We cannot use it to divide up the world into nice, meaningful little boxes. Instead, it reflects the complexity and the interconnectedness of the world. Um, it is fuzzy more often than not. And it's good that it's fuzzy. Um, in other places, it's stressed, like Russell especially emphasized that the ambiguity of language is what allows us to actually understand each other. If you say, I sat under a tree today, the question that is posed to you usually isn't, which tree? Like, no, we understand what you mean by a tree. And we can envision all kinds of trees. We could, you know, incorrectly imagine that you sat under a willow when in fact you were sat sitting under an oak. But it doesn't matter. What is significant for your purposes, whether you're telling a story or otherwise, is to tell us about what you were doing this afternoon. And while we may only have a rough idea, we may not know where the tree is, or what kind of tree it was, or like whether it had leaves or not, or what kind of day it was, at the end of the day, what you are trying to express, we get. We pick up what you are putting down. You may only be putting down a little bit, but that's okay, because we only need to pick up a little bit. Language is intentionally ambiguous, intentionally unclear. It is intentionally really complicated in order to achieve that. Um, but at the same time, it works. Um, we have a vague understanding of one another. Um, we can, in fact, communicate our experiences, our ideas, our understanding to one another. Um, but that said, Wittgenstein wants to highlight the difficulties and complexities there as well. Um, as much as he wants to stress, these language enforces all of these family resemblances rather than these hard, fast distinctions. He also wants to point out that what we generally talk about when we get into these discussions of like, what is language actually saying, the amb ambiguity of language, are frequently things that don't actually matter. Consider his discussion on the subject of pain. Now, we've kicked around the whole like Cartesian, do we actually understand what's going on in anybody else's head? Like, can we know what another person's experience is? Wittgenstein approaches it from the same direction in that sense, but his conclusions are radically different. For Descartes, you can only ever suspect that, like, things are the way that they are. Um, you have to ultimately, like, just trust your senses, trust God, and go with it. For Wittgenstein, on the other hand, his conclusion is that it doesn't matter. So take his discussion of pain, for example, um, because he has a lot to say about it. Um, so look at paragraph 257 at roughly the end of this whole excerpt. What would it be like if human beings showed no outward signs of pain, did not groan, grimace, etc.? Then it would be impossible to teach a child the use of the word toothache. 
Well, let's assume the child is a genius and itself invents a name for the sensation, but then, of course, he couldn't make himself understood when he used the word. So does he understand the name without being able to explain its meaning to anyone? And what does it mean to say that he has named his pain? How has he done this naming of pain? And whatever he did, what was its purpose? When one says he gave a name to his sensation, one forgets that a great deal of stage setting in the language is presupposed that the mere act of naming is to make sense. And when we speak of someone's having given a name to pain, what is presupposed is the existence of the grammar of the word pain. It shows the post where the new word is stationed. If we don't express pain, then we don't have any way of describing it. Like, how do you know that I am in pain? How do you know that a friend of yours is in pain? Well, maybe they're gritting their teeth, or maybe they're groaning, or maybe they say ouch, or maybe, you know, they're favoring one leg or another. Um, maybe they're, like, rubbing their, heart, their hand or their arm or wherever it seems to hurt. And you say, are you okay? Are you in pain? And they respond, yes, my leg hurts, or my arm hurts, or my teeth hurt, or whatever. Um, but notice, in order for us to be able to understand that pain is going on, we have this complex training involved, both on our educational end and on trying to recognize it in other people. On the one hand, we have a sensation that we call pain. Like when we're kids, we stub our toes and we're like, well, crap, now I feel pain. Um, but at first, we don't actually have a word for it. We just hurt. Our response is frequently to just cry, wail, pointlessly. Um, and then, you know, people look us over and they, they're like, hey, what, what's wrong? And then maybe you just like show them the thing that is wrong. And then you get a Band-Aid and some Neosporin and you're, you know, somebody kisses it and everything's fine or, you know, relatively fine. Um, this is the first sort of experience we have with this sensation. We don't have a name for it at this point. When ultimately we learn the name for it, it's usually in this context. Do you feel pain, we are asked. And we're like, what's pain? Um, and which it is described, like it hurts. Um, it made a boo-boo, um, however you want to describe it. But how do you capture that? Like at what point do you, as a parent or as you know a teacher, say to a child, that feeling that is unpleasant, that, you know, makes you want to cry or hurt, we call that pain, and we expect you to use that word from now on. There's something kind of absurd about that. Um, we recognize that, like, pain, hurting, that happens naturally. The inclination to, like, rub the place that is sore happens all by itself. But with that in mind, do we, understanding pain, seeing it in others, only recognize the pain activity, the pain behavior, rather than the pain itself. Like if, in fact, you go up to someone and they're rubbing their arm or they're favoring one leg or over another, or they're gritting their teeth, and you say, are you in pain? And they say, no, I just like gritting my teeth, or I just like rubbing my arm, or I just like favoring one leg over the other. That implies exactly the same information as actual pain. Like, we can't tell the difference from the outside. Sure, we might be able to have, like, for ourselves the sensation of pain. Um, but how are we supposed to communicate it? Like, if a doctor comes to you in a hospital bed and says, how much pain are you in? You might be able to sit there calmly and be like, oh, this is the worst pain I've ever been in, in my life, doctor. It absolutely sucks, but it's okay because I got it under control. And the doctor will look at you and be like, bullshit. Because the doctor knows what to look for. 
The doctor is waiting for you to, you know, be screaming if it's an excruciating pain. Or for you to be, like, really moving a lot if you are really uncomfortable. Or to, like, be favoring one leg or the, or, or the other. Or to, like, be, like, rubbing or lifting it up or somehow. The pain doesn't exist until you demonstrate the behavior as far as the doctor is concerned. And rightfully so. Because otherwise you could lie. You could just be in there to try and get painkillers. And, and tons of people try and do that. But the weird thing about this is that there's no way of knowing whether or not the behavior matches the sensation. We keep saying you are acting that way because you are in pain, because you have this mental state, because you are experiencing this certain sensation, and yet we can never verify that except through the behavior. Why are you gritting your teeth? Because your teeth hurt, we assume. Why are you holding your arm? Because your arm hurts we assume. Why are you favoring one leg over the other? Because your leg hurts, we assume. But we will never be able to actually dig into your head. We can never feel your pain. But importantly for Wittgenstein, this is a linguistic trick. The fact that we have this conversation where we don't know if my pain looks the same as your pain, if you are experiencing the same sensation that I do when you rub your arm as when I rub my arm, for Wittgenstein it doesn't matter. Notice paragraph 293. I say of myself that it is only from my own case that I know what the word pain means. Must I not say the same of other people too? And how can I generalize the one case so irresponsibly? How do I know what pain is? I have experienced pain. But why do I assume that everybody I meet experiences pain the same way? How do I know that the feeling is completely the same? That it's not completely different in every single case? Now someone tells me that he knows what pain is only from his own case. Suppose everyone had a box with something in it. We'll call it a beetle. No one can look into anyone else's box. And everyone says he knows what a beetle is only by looking at his beetle. Here it would be quite possible for everyone to have something different in his box. One might even imagine such a thing constantly changing. But suppose the word beetle had a use in this, these people's language. If so, it would not be used as the name of a thing. The, name, the thing in the box has no place in the language game at all, not even as a something, for the box might even be empty. No, one can divide through by the thing in the box. It cancels out whatever it is. That is to say, if we construe the grammar of the expression of sensation on the model of object and designation, the object drops out of consideration as irrelevant. The word pain is meaningless. You cannot define it. You cannot describe it. All you can do is demonstrate it. You can say, I feel pain. You can give the name to the sensation that you experience, but that's it. You cannot assume that it's the same sensation for everyone. You cannot assume that they experience the same thing. You cannot assume anything about it. And for that reason, as far as language is concerned, the word pain is empty. It is irrelevant to the game. Think of it this way. How do we understand the word snow? Like, obviously, we have a sort of definition place. Here we have a basic noun. It's fairly concrete. It's something that we can talk about directly. Let's say that a child comes up to you and says, there is snow outside. And you look, and yes, there is snow outside. And you say, good, go play in the snow. And they say, no, I don't want to play in the snow. Snow is too hot. 
you can respond in one of two ways here. And the most logical way to respond is, no, snow is too cold. You assume that there is a misconception, that this child doesn't know what they're talking about, that snow is attached to coldness as opposed to hot. Like snow is cold, therefore you've got cold and hot confused. That's the problem. Now, how do you know? How do you know that they don't actually experience snow as heat? How do you know that their direct experience is completely the same as yours? That is a wild assumption on your part, but notice what you're doing by telling the child no. Notice what you do when you correct them. When you say snow is cold, you are building a connection. You are defining the experience that they have. And no matter what experience that is, they will associate it with snow. Maybe boiling water is hot, maybe snow is cold, but we only understand these words in connection with each other as words. Like the beetle in the box, even if the box is empty, even if the sensation is something completely different from everybody else's sensation, it does not matter because in the language it functions the same way. Snow is cold, hot or like sand in summer sun is hot. We assume that this is the case, but more importantly, we enforce it. When someone says the sand in this warm sun is cold, our response is, no, you must be confused, or you must be drunk, or you must not have the words right, or you must be, like, unaware of what these words mean. No, hot sand is hot. Snow is cold, ice cream is cold, like, jacuzzis are hot, boiling water is hot, the stovetop is hot. These are the words that we associate with one another. Um, and notice... As far as the actual sensation and reality are concerned, the words are indifferent. Um, our language works as a system of interconnected meanings, a system of family resemblances, but it is all internal. It is all utterly separate from the actual world around us. Whether you feel the same sensation as I do when both of us touch snow is irrelevant. Because as a society, as a linguistic community, we have agreed that we will call snow cold. And for you to say that it's not indicates that there is something either wrong with your, you as a person, like you're doing something wrong, your, your body is misconstrued, you need a doctor to check you out, or that you don't understand how the word functions in this system. But notice, that means the system is every bit as important as the word. That means that the definition is not something that is, like, static, something that can be found in a book, but something that we as a society have agreed upon, and that's all that gives it meaning. See, what Wittgenstein is suggesting here, or at least, again, this is largely my interpretation, I know that I'm, like, Wittgenstein is ambiguous on a lot of this stuff, um, and I know that I come up with a fairly weird uh, explanation of Wittgenstein on this one. Um, Wittgenstein is suggesting that language itself is self-contained and has no bearing on what we call reality. Like the coherence theory of truth, it is consistent internally, and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter whether snow is, in reality, cold or hot. We say that snow is cold, we expect everybody to acknowledge that snow is cold, and we go from there. Likewise, if you go on the internet and you have any conversation about any movie, you will find yourself up against the general consensus. 
We all agree that Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice was a bad movie and that The Avengers was a good movie. Or at the very least that The Avengers was widely acknowledged to be a good movie even though a lot of people hate it because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, you know, commercial and like the same all the time and etc 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 but even these opinions are founded by the community what you thought of any individual movie is irrelevant the consensus is that x was a good movie y was a bad movie and that's all that matters um we understand or come to understand what a good or bad movie is based on these examples if you say what makes a movie good, I would say, well, go watch, you know, this good movie, this good movie, this good movie, this good movie, and this good movie. And they will all be movies that generally are agreed upon to be good. Does that mean that the movies are themselves good according to some objective definition, the way that Plato wants us to believe? Or does that mean that we define goodness based on the movies that we have cobbled together, the way that Wittgenstein seems to be suggesting? We agree this is what a good movie looks like. These are the factors, the qualities that it has. This is what a good movie is as compared to a bad movie. This is what makes snow cold. No, it's not a sensation. No, it's not an experience. It doesn't matter what your experience is. It divides through. It drops out. Like the beetle in the box, it doesn't matter what's in the box. We all just recognize that we're going to call it a beetle. Uh, whatever feeling you had watching a good movie, that was a good movie feeling. That's how you can tell what a good movie is from now on. Doesn't matter whether you enjoyed it or not, that is the sensation you should expect to experience anytime you watch a, quote, good movie. So as Wittgenstein is suggesting, and as he will ultimately conclude, philosophy is basically just a trick of grammar in a lot of cases. When we say that God is perfect and therefore must exist, what we are basically doing is grammatical acrobatics we are doing a grammatical somersault um, we are letting the words tell us what meaning is um, rather than discerning it for ourselves basing it on some reality external to language language builds its own internal meaning in part because of training in part because of social conditioning in part because of collective agreement in part because of like the structured definitions that get placed in dictionaries as a result of these other forces but importantly all of this is language um, language does not correspond to reality the way that most thinkers have thought augustine says you point to an object you say its name that's how you know the name of the object but honestly what wittgenstein is increasingly suggesting is that the name exists entirely independently of the object what is a book you ask well, it is an object with words on it. Not an object in space, but object in the sense of object is a word in the language. It is a fancy name for a thing. It has words on it, which is another definition that we need to talk about. It's not something that will ultimately pin down to reality. It's not something where you can say, here it is. Here is the quintessential number one book of which the word was coined. Instead, all it will mean is a relationship of words to other words. A book relates to words, a book relates to libraries, a book relates to reading, a book relates to scholarship, classes, um, studying, boredom in some cases. 
um, all of these are things that are not actually intrinsic to the object. They can't be intrinsic to the object. These are things, these are established relationships in the rules of language. These are agreements that all of us have made. These words connect to one another. That's what a definition ultimately is. Um, and I think there's something really important about that. Um, something really important to that observation. We do need to be careful about our language. Um, now that said, Wittgenstein is not saying that like nothing means anything. Language is garbage. Like this is not a Derrida situation where he says that there is no context and everything can be de decontextualized and like meaning is entirely extrinsic to language. In fact, he's saying kind of quite the opposite. Meaning is intrinsic to language. There is no such thing as meaning except language's connections within language, words connecting to other words. If we say, what is the meaning of the word fish? You don't go to the ocean, you go to a dictionary. Um, you look at other words that are related either intellectually or otherwise. Um, that doesn't mean that it's arbitrary or superficial or meaningless. It means that it is, in fact, meaningful. It's just meaningful in a context that we usually don't think about. It means that when you say a fish is this and point to an object in the ocean, that is only so useful. Um, it will only get you so far. At the end of the day, you're going to have to refer words to words to words to words to words, and you're not going to get to the bedrock on this one. Um, it will ultimately become ambiguous. You will end up in a beetle-in-the-box situation, a personal sensation issue, and at that point, you're done. There is only so much explanation. Um, likewise, in that discussion that he has about understanding with the, the child who's like counting... Uh, a system, like count every other number from zero to a thousand. And they start out well, zero, two, four, six, eight, etc. But then they get to a thousand, they start going one thousand, one thousand four, one thousand eight. And you're like, wait, 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 no, you're doing it wrong. How do they know? How do they recognize what a pattern is? We expect a pattern to be recognized because they can reproduce it, because they can do it on their own. But how do we know that they've understood? And how do we recognize a mistake as either random or systematic? Um, how do we know that you have taken away the message that I've meant to convey? And not just misinterpreted the words that I've had to say to, as the pragmatists would suggest, fit your own understanding of the world. Um, and in part, I say that knowing full well that I am afraid of that all the time. Like, I worry that I stand up at the front of the class and you just sort of, like, misinterpret everything that I have to say. But I also think that that's kind of the point of philosophy altogether. Um... Like, as much as I may have screwed up and as much as, you know, you may not fully understand all of these different philosophers, as much as you might not be able to read Aquinas as Aquinas would have wanted you to read and or read Descartes as Descartes would have expected, that's okay. Because what I think I have done and what the goal of this class largely has been um, is to prepare you to think outside of your own box to start looking at the world from as many perspectives as you possibly can, simultaneously, ideally, but consecutively if necessary. I wanted you to, at the end of this class, be able to think at least approximately like Descartes or Wittgenstein or Nietzsche or uh, Hume or Plato or Aquinas, um, to be able to 
reframe your understanding of the world. Because at the end of the day, like the pragmatists suggested, you will become a richer thinker and you will become a more robust thinker if you are not just locked into your own point of view. Um, if you can think flexibly about all of these different thinkers, if you can think in a way that sh can change, then you will be more prepared to actually modify what it is that you believe, what it is that you think, what it is that you believe and think about the world. You will be more able to communicate, in short, to overcome those shortcomings of language that Wittgenstein identifies, to recognize when somebody is making a mistake based on their own perspectives and identify with that change in perspective and not just to you know dismiss them as being stupid or ignorant or wrong. Um, I hope that that's your takeaway here. I hope that you will interrogate yourselves, be able to change yourselves, to be able to be dissatisfied with just one way of looking at the world. Um, that's kind of what I'm going for here. And I know that that's not really an analytic attitude, that's more of a continental thing, but I'm okay with that. Like, that's probably the best continental lesson there is to learn. Um, so all that said, I hope that you enjoyed this class. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Um, this is, like, way in advance when I'm recording this. So we've got the Q&A this week. Be sure to show up so we can talk about the review for the final exam. Um, if you have any questions in the meantime, obviously shoot them my way. Get me your late assignments as soon as possible. Remember, May 11th is the last date I am accepting anything. Um, so get it to me as soon as you possibly can. And in the meantime, I hope you have a good summer vacation for what it's worth. Like, I don't know what the heck we're going to be dealing with as far as COVID-19 is concerned. Um, this lecture is supposed to be listened to, like, the first week of May. Supposedly, at this point in time, we're already going to be, like, back to work at that point. Not us, obviously. Colleges are their own thing. But, you know, Trump's like, everybody go back to work May 1st. God, I hope that we're not all dead by the time that this lecture is supposed to, to air. Um, anyway, if you are, that sucks. I'm so sorry. Um, but if you're not, good luck and have a good summer. And I hope to, I hope your future experience is informed by the philosophy that you've learned. I hope that you take it away with you 